Don't you know by now? Don't you know the truth? We are being punished. For what? For going against the will of God. For going against his forbidden rules of old. Walking on the moon. Yes. Yes. Or, or splitting his atoms. Or, 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 or stem cells and abortions. And destroying the secrets of life that only God above has any right to. Yes, I know. It is true. And now we are being punished. The judgment is being brought down upon us. The fiends of hell, you see, they are let loose. And Star Wormwood blazes. Welcome back. We are going to talk now about our, now that we've kind of just said a bunch of nice things about It Chapter 2, we're going to talk about some other adaptations of King's, uh, Stephen King's books and short stories and what have you. Um, we're going to do our, our each our top five um, King adaptations. So um, Before we begin with you, that, yeah, however, okay. I do have a very special honorable mention. And that this movie is awful. Oh, okay. But as a kid, I loved it. And I rewatched it in preparation for this. And I still loved it. Um, it is based on his short story from Night Shift. The Mangler. That was almost on my list. <laughs> I love The Mangler. 1995 Tobe Hooper movie. Me and my friends oh. love The Mangler. I don't know it's, that I saw that. It's the, so... the sheet pressing thing. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. the short story. I don't remember the... So good. Just just a good old-fashioned dumb slasher I got with it right here. really good actors that don't oh, make no, it. It's on, it's on the other version of my list, yeah. With, with Ted Levine. Ted Levine. Playing a good old cop. Robert England playing a... Crazed laundry owner, really good gore effects. Ah, it's so good. Old lady and her acids slip into the press and activate the demon inside because there's deadly nightshade in the. They made a bunch of sequels. There's two sequels. It became a series of films. The Mangler. Mangler's awesome. There's a killer icebox at some point. Me and my friends love the Mangler with some dead birds. We did, and it tries to eat a man's hand. Oh. It's dumb, but awesome. Have so, you, so you've never seen the Mangler movie? I've, I've never read the short story. I've, I've never read the short story. Either. I've read it, but I, I may have seen it and just forgotten about it. It's so Stephen King. But How, you, how's this sound to you, JP? Uh, killer demon-infested uh, laundry machine. That sounds mm-hmm. cool, right? Yeah. What about if that demon-infested laundry machine got legs and started chasing people around? That's how you make a hundred-minute movie out of it. <laughs> That's the only way. Yeah. <laughs> laundry like, machine runs around chasing people. Awesome. So like, good. Is awesome. it a laundry machine with legs? Please say it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a giant, like, it's well, a giant like, laundry. Like, I will be watching this this week. It's good. So do your number five since you're since oh, you oh, are. Oh, 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 no, oh, can oh. we just talk about bad Stephen King? Yeah, well, okay, we can do that too. Yeah, we can talk about bad but entertaining. Okay. Hmm. 
You can't just be... Up until It Chapter 2, the worst Stephen King adaptation I'd ever seen was Dreamcatcher. Dreamcatcher <laughs> was the worst movie I'd seen in my life. I'd still, I'd still argue Dreamcatcher is, is the worst in the sense of it's the worst made like overall production, but at least it's entertaining at points. I mean, I was, how, like, I was laughing of a production through is. the whole movie. Yeah, exactly. And, but people in the theater were mad at me because it's clearly not like a laughing no, no, movie. No. It fucking stinks. There were other people in the theater with Tons it? of people. It, I was think, like a, it was like a fully think, packed theater. I think Damien Lewis was in on the joke. I don't know, man. Man, he's 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 a real goob. He's a real goober in that movie. That and I think that fucking terrible. I'm good actually. Thank you. Okay. Uh, he's a real goober in that. Um, that movie's terrible, but it's it's great. Terrible. Got got nice old Morgan oh, Freeman. Jesus. Tom Sizemore. Yeah. Timothy Oliphant. I can just keep going. All of our favorites. Thomas Jane. And a fully realized internal inside of someone's mind. Yeah. The library. You're not supposed so many to do library that. shots. You're not supposed to like show that in the movie. No, you're not supposed to at all. Okay. Oh man. Uh, what are the other bad? Ones? I don't know. Well, it's interesting though. It's not no, even bad. Hold but... really quickly though. You know what's so interesting about Dreamcatcher? Catcher number one. No, you know what's so interesting about it? What is it? It's our friend Lawrence Kasdan directed it. Yep. He sure <laughs> did. Just. What else did that? he make? Fucking Lawrence Kasdan. <laughs> You can't escape it. You can't escape it. What are you going to say, Joe? The Big Chill. <laughs> Accidental Tourist. Number 93. Oh, that's like The Big yeah. Chill? The yeah. Stephen King book? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Did you, did you have a bad... I just had to say, um, it's not even necessarily bad, but it's like, what the fuck? Uh, the Lawnmower Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah, Lawnmower Man. Isn't at all like the book or a story, Nothing. Right? No. It's... You know what was a good attempt... Not the same. Lawnmower Man was weird. You know why Lawnmower Man was weird? Because it seemed like it was um, riding the coattails of like the Max Headroom stuff. Like with some of like the effects and what have you. It was like that pre-digital effects, but they could still... Pre-good digital effects, but they could still do a couple of things. Right. Um, so yeah, it was weird. It was a weird movie. It was a movie. weird movie. I think the... What was the other one? I was just, oh, um, The Secret Window... The Johnny Depp movie? Never saw it. That was a weird movie. Yeah. It's it's weird, but fun. It's kind of good, yeah. but also, like... Kind of awful. Oh, yeah. Like, Johnny Depp is clearly just... Like, he's reading the script right before they say action. Right. Type of performance. Like, just post... Paycheck. Um, what's it called? Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, where, like, Johnny Depp could do anything, and, like, they, oh, he picked this weird Stephen King movie to do. I mean, we could also, like, talk about the Green Mile, maybe. But I think that might be on somebody's list, so we won't talk about the Green Mile. But that was... It doesn't. It doesn't make my list. It's not on your list? Nope. Your list? That movie is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I still like it, but it is it is ridiculous at parts. It's over long, too. I just saw it the one time. One, I never read it. Uh, saw it the one time. Yeah. Way, way back, so... It's, it's good. Very, it's fine. But, it's well made. It's just kind of yeah. silly and over long and, and too reminiscent of... Uh, for me, and of a, uh, of like Saving Private Ryan, with like the old man, Back to the Past, old man stuff. It's like no, but this one's it's the old man and a mouse. Yeah, it's not a World War Two thing. It's just mouse things. Um. All right. So number five. My number five. Go. Um, we talked about this a little earlier about how we're how I think this man will be able to do an adaptation of a story justice, especially I've never read Doctor Sleep, but 
by all accounts from people I've talked to, Doctor Sleep is garbage. From, I mean, critically, I think it's pretty well received, but it's makes we it's weird. Makes weird. You you told me it makes weird choices. The second time I read it, I thought it was more fun while simultaneously just being. There's just lots of there's just lots of things in it that don't work. But the true knot is a mistake. But that's neither here nor there. Continue. My number five would be the 2017 Netflix adaptation written, uh, co-written by Mike Flanagan and Jeff Howard and directed by Mike Flanagan, Gerald's Game. Somebody! Help! Wake up. Just wake up. It's time to wake up, honey. Five hours you've wasted screaming for neighbors that are half a mile away if they're even here yet. How long do you think someone lives without water? That will not work. You can pull to your wrists break. You're not getting out of those cuffs. Not real. Um, You've been talking about this for since years, it came yeah. out, yeah. Yeah, this is this is one of those films like that we talked about. Like Gerald's Game comes out about two weeks, I think, or two or three weeks after It Chapter One, uh-huh. um, which doesn't actually It Chapter One does not make my list just because It Chapter Two really ruined my opinion of It Chapter One. Well, I was one. wondering how that should be handled. Are they separate movies? They're or? separate movies. Yeah. They're separate movies, but I was ta- I was talking earlier like it just it really maybe in a in another it made me like it weeks, more but yeah. let's continue um this really settles heavily have, have you seen the, have you sat down and watched this one yet I know you had it for a long time I have time. not seen it yet no. I haven't seen um, it either. but it just you know Gerald's game is often considered like unfilmable um you know Jesse and Gerald kind of go off on a little retreat by themselves I never actually read the story the book no, no but I he's talked he's talked about it a lot it, it's one of those it's books very that internal he, it's very internal. It was one of those experiment books where um, he just wanted to see if he could do it. Like one person, one room. Like, yeah. can I do this? Right. Like, um, how do I do it? And talking out loud to themselves. A yeah. Lot. So you know, Jesse and Gerald, who are married, they go off on a retreat by themselves. There's a, a sexual role play. Gerald dies. Jesse's tied to the bed, and then kind of goes through a psychotic break. Of trying to escape, has her husband's dead on the ground, and also dealing with the trauma of um, sexual assault committed by her father. While there's also uh, this pending moonlight sort of man who's maybe either has the premonition of Gerald, uh, says to her, because she's still haunted by Gerald, um, says could be death, but also, you know, ends up actually being just kind of like the serial killer who was kind of like roaming over the land. Um, and it works, and you know, you know it just this is something so buoyed by its like three main performances: Carla Gugino, who I never really thought would be. Yeah, oh. she's good. I just I, that was a, that was a, no, I interpreted well, no, that as a I, different I, looking. I face. only know her from Spy Kids, so like, well, the like, fact think, that she was chosen for this movie yeah. was. I think the culture has decided that she is one of like the underrated. No, and and yeah, this this would this would this, absolutely like, assume it. Yeah, um, you know she she carries so much like pathos on her face and just goes through all the emotions of uh, of dealing with the situation. Um, 
but also kind of using it to deal with this trauma. And it's just a story that deals with like just dealing with with post traumatic stress. You know, she was molested as a child by her uh, father, Tom, played so perfectly classed by Henry Thompson Thomas. You know, you get Elliot yeah. <laughs> to play like the absolute most like skeevy sort of awful I f- human being. I feel old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, and, and and he nails it out of the park. Bruce Greenwood, who I always thought was kind of criminally underrated, has her husband just hits all the notes of like talking down to her. It's it's just such a solid character piece. And and Mike Flanagan doesn't try to like attempt to make it larger than it is. You know, sometimes he goes a little king-esque with like the visuals in terms of like the eclipse that kind of goes throughout throughout the story. Um but it it still keeps it so well refined into the mm. mind and going into the ending where finally she confronts the moonlight man who also kind of manifests you know in court manifests himself as both gerald and tom and she says you know um you're so much smaller than i remember it's just like a fucking punch of an ending of, of just like overcoming it and as she walks mm. off into the sunset it's a little goofy of an ending kind of so that the eclipse fade away like yeah. quietly and it's just it's such a powerful single person character piece um that it's just I watched it twice and I was pretty drunk when I watched it. Uh, I think Re had Re had actually gone out to do something like at Archie's and I walked home and I was there like, I'm gonna watch Gerald's game and I watched Gerald's game. I was like, Yeah. And then I immediately rewatched Gerald's Why? game. Um just because I liked it so much. I mean it's, it's very got, well it's, regarded. Yeah, it's like you know, it really, it's it, the violence is also limited, but it has one of the most like graphic scenes of just intense violence where she mm. finally escapes. She gloves herself. It's fucking hard to watch. So like, it captures the horror when it needs to, but it, it, ultimately, it's just such a, a solid character piece, and it captures like when King does characters. You know, he does them well, um, which is, often isn't something I like from King, but this was the one time where somebody, I think, captured that and, yeah. and kept it refined. And I think that's why I have a lot of... Hope. I'm maybe too optimistic. I, yeah. I really think Dr. Sleep's going to be good, and maybe I shouldn't think that, but Mike Flanagan has yet to like let me down. <laughs> so Yeah, I guess so. Well, but what did you guys think of Dr. Sleep, the book? I didn't read Dr. Sleep, the oh, book. Okay. I read it twice. I, like I said, I hated it the first time. Um, I think the second time through, I enjoyed some of the adultness of it, like the alcoholism, right. like the where Danny is, all yeah. that stuff really rings um, accurate and, and well done. And it makes a lot of sense to me. This, the true not thing, like the people that kind of feed off of people that shine mm-hmm. is handled terribly. And I'm not sure why Stephen King thought it was a good idea, <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, Just seeing the trailer, I, I know what you mean. Well, so I'd say saying tomorrow is like in terms of making choices. There's a cup. There's a scene in the book, in which like the leader of the True Knot confronts this little girl in her mind, like she touches her in her mind, but the thing happens in like a grocery store. There's no real reason for it to happen in a grocery store except for the fact that like the people in the True Knot are, they just want to show them doing normal people things or whatever. Um, it's still in a grocery store. I would have assumed that making a movie, they would have done something way more interesting with this. Mm. Um, set it, staged it differently, but it seems like they staged it in the exact same way, with the main villain staring into 
the free the window of a freezer section at a grocery store. I'm still really quickly though before we jump off, like just to joke. I'm still surprised you haven't seen it yet. After you, at Side Street one time, made fun of me when we were talking about our awards for 2017. <laughs> nominated both Carla Gugino and Bruce Greenwood in my acting categories. Bruce Greenwood that year. being nominated for anything, even if it's unofficial <laughs> Mario at the Bar awards, is um, just problematic. A little bit of a stretch. Um, I'll, I'll I go, love Bruce Greenwood. I'll go next. We'll switch it up a little okay. bit. On the subject of Bruce Greenwood, deep character studies. My number five is. The 1987 adaptation of Stephen King's The Running Man. In the year 2017, an innocent man accused of a crime has a choice. Hard time or prime time. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. He must pay or play The Running Man. On your mark! I'll be back. rated TV show in history. Guess they want us to stay. Arnold, you got Arnold Schwarzenegger as Ben Richards. You get Maria Conchita Alonso. Um, Paul Michael Gleiser directed this? Yeah. Were you, what? Were you undecided on this? I don't see it. What? I don't see a number five on your list. So oh, yeah, it's right there. No, I just oh, it, I it erased the five when it just decided to... Hold on. Everything. Gotcha. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Pause here. He also, and, and he stopped with Kazam. Good, good spot Why to stop there. Why do you there. want to stop there and not stop when I say that this movie also stars Richard Dawson? Um, end, end of argument. Jesse Ventura. Jim Jesse, Brown. Jesse Mick, the body. Mick Fleetwood. Yeah. Mick Fleetwood. I loved it. Man, oh, I, I was all in when for a that long came time. Out. I thought, but I was fifteen. Uh, I don't want to say for a long time. I thought Running Man was like the coolest movie I've ever seen because it had a bunch of people in it that I knew. All the like the guys that were trying to kill Ben were awesome, like Dynamo. You're also forgetting Professor Toro Tanaka, I know. who we talked about during the last Action Hero conversation. I know. You got if you have Professor Toro Tanaka, you're gonna respect the words in your mouth. So this is like one of those kind of like way before Hunger Games dystopian things where like the culture is obsessed with death and like they're, you know, people that are supposed to be in jail are now being run through this entertainment factory and they're being killed on camera and all that. Yeah, King got to that before everyone. And it's a, it's a Bachman book. So it's not like a serious thing, but it's just, I still, cool. I still have never read the Running Man book. I know it's. Oh, I've never read the Running Man book either. Seriously different. I know eventually it involves a hijacking of a plane. It's a little more almost crashing the yeah, plane. Yeah, they keep this one down low. It's just like yeah. the game and like yeah, the beginning yeah. of the game, which is cool. It's just like a. It's a fun movie. Um, it doesn't really take itself very serious. It's an Arnold, It's an eighties Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, so there's lots of one-liners, lots of quips. Yeah. Well, Richard you Dawson's know. great. Yeah, Richard Dawson well, is very it's, good. It's a uh, Stephen. E. De Souza wrote it, and like that was the 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 dude. That was the Shane Black before Shane Black was a person. You know, he wrote um, Shane Black forty eight hours, person, then, wasn't he? No, kind of starting to become a person. Like he did some script work on Predator and whatnot, but he didn't mm-hmm. start really getting majorly known until late eighties or nineties. Been like Commando, Running Man, and um, Die Hard, which is some I never heard of that one. <laughs> Yeah, the other one that was in the in vying for number five was Silver Bullet, but like I don't remember. But why? Why is why is it why is it, why is it there though? Just 
Corey why? Hayes. Just because Silver Bullet there? Yeah, why Running Man there? Cause oh, because it's just awesome. awesome. Okay. Because when I was, when I was like a... Uh, it, it, was, it was vying for my list, but I was like, I can't justify just putting awesome in here. No, because... So I have a pro- I kind of have a problem with like Stephen King adaptations where like they've adapted lots of crap. And so a lot of this stuff stinks. So even though Silver... I remember Silver Bullet as a kid being like... Actually finding it really scary. Um, the man in just like a werewolf mask. And, you know, when Corey Haim shoots him in the eye and when he just chucks Gary Busey across the room in slow motion yeah. is awesome. And I remember it being very scary, but I also don't remember anything about... It didn't, it didn't, like, stick with me. Running... I still have some of those, like, Schwarzenegger running man faces, like, in my mind. Or some of those... Um, what do they call them? The guys that are trying to kill him. Oh, what is the word they use for them? But some of their deaths are still like, like right there, ingrained they, in your mind. Yeah, or the guy, or was it? It's no, Dy- see, they're not for me, but Dynamo, the opera guy that like yeah. sings opera while he's like shooting, like shooting electricity out of his arms or fire or something. Yeah, but see, you know, I this is like all those all those bad Stephen King adaptations, even Children of the Corn. I ate it up. Yeah, just yeah. I'm. I'm I'm watching this shit. I feel like Running Man's my dad's fault. But Running Man, like, that sort of dystopian, like you say, like, allowing people to enter into this contest, like, death or riches. Uh-huh. Just as a young, not even teenager, but, you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old, it's like, this is interesting stuff, you know? Well, and it's handled interestingly, too, in the sense that... It, it's not world building, but I've always found it like the beginning of the movie when he goes into like the you know, into the 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 game I guess it's called when they like stick him in that pod and they like shoot him, release like, him. Yeah, it's like why do they stick him into a pod and like like shoot him into the thing? Why doesn't he just like walk in? Like, what's the point of all this stuff? But in my mind as a kid, it's like, well, that's just. That just added extra coolness. You know what I mean? Like, oh, they got to stick him in a pod and they're going to shoot him into wherever. And he's going to wear, like, a, a unitard. And it's well, going to be awesome. It almost has a lot in common with Total Recall in, like, the absurdness of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Number five, JP. My number five is David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. If the future were in your hands, daughter's screaming. The house is would you change it? Hurry up, hurry up. It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. With a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody... I mean, nobody! Gonna stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? Oh, man. Don't like it? No, I do like it. I like it. Uh, like the book a lot, and was a, always a David Cronenberg fan. Um, I think I saw Videodrome before this, and... Uh, when I saw that he was adapting a Stephen King book, I like shit my pants and 
it came given through. Your age, given your age, literally, or at the time? <laughs> it was acceptable then, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was wearing diapers. But uh, <laughs> no, uh, um, the Frank Dodd stuff in that is really, like, just when he kills himself, when he's caught and he's gonna, and he just is lowering his head down. Yeah, that, that's, that's awesome. On the scissors is imprinted in my mind. Yep. Some of it's a little cheesy, like the, the shock flashbacks. Yeah. A little bit, but, but it's, it's still the early eighties. It's it's just really well adapted. So Well the the book is so weirdly dark while simultaneously being like, you know, just Well know, not being not King. being a horror book, you know, it's and, more psychological. And like, I had read that he really wanted to make he wanted to make the Christopher Walken character a hero. He very specifically wanted him to be the hero. Okay. Which is why, um, in the beginning of the book, he kicks the shit out of that dog. Like, he wanted a very specific separation between, like, who the good guys were and the bad guys were. Right, right. Um, which, in terms of movie making, is very good for making movies, but maybe not for, like, a Cronenberg movie. So then it just gets it's really... so obvious. Christopher Walken can never be just a good guy. Yeah, he just he just gonna blur the lines. Yeah, exactly. But that's always been a problem with me for King um, is like his bullies and his like the badness of some people. I mean, yeah, those people are out there, but my experience of the world, anyways, I never encountered anyone that ridiculously no no, no. evil, you know. And so it almost seems like caricatures. Mario's. It makes me feel bad sometimes. <laughs> That's the point. Wait, awesome. I got ladies. Oh, yeah, ladies, yeah. <laughs> and then we get tons of listeners now. All right, what's the number four? Oh, am I on, I'm on number four. Yeah, because we're going to go this way now. Like a confusing fantasy football. Also, there, you, might have, you might have noticed I, I kept quiet during that discussion. I know, I figured. You don't like it? No, I couldn't talk. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my number four off Mike uh, earlier, Mario said he um, had eliminated this from a competition, but for me, it's huge. It's creep show. Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. Which is, Creepshow's great. I love Creepshow. I I eliminate it. it because... I don't know. You think it's more of a Romero thing than a King thing? It's, uh, yeah, that's a, like, he's so involved in its writing and creation, but I was trying to keep it so tightly knit with, like, just fully on his adaptations. And I struggle with that, too. I was actually going to send you something about that. That's why Maxim Overdrive's not my number one. (laughs) That's the one reason. The only reason. The only reason. It's based on trucks. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I I was like, well, it's not an adaptation. You wrote it for the screen. I was like, fuck it, it's a king thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I think that's fair. 
And uh, yeah, I love it. The crate, I think, is my favorite of the five. I've I don't never know about seen you guys. What? I've really? Never seen it. Well, I'm see, sorry. as a crate's great. I love something that tied you over too. Yes, um, and that was the other one I was gonna. I mean, and then late, then years later, realizing, watching Creepshow again and going, "That's fucking Leslie Nielsen from Naked Gun." Next, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is uh, I mean, he's just been in Airplane by this point, so mm-hmm. he hasn't really established himself as a comedy actor, right? But... Yeah, uh, I don't I don't know. the crate's hilarious too. Getting Hal Holbrook in a comedy role. Like, in a darkly comedic role is well, just genius. And that's, you know, creep... It doesn't sound genius, but, like, I can also imagine... Well, it does not sound so, genius. Hal Holbrook... Look, I was, you know, I really thought a lot about it, and Creepshow and, like, Mad Magazine were just so formative for me. Uh-huh. The black, black humor in Creepshow. Like, you know, him fantasizing about shooting his wife because yeah, she's yeah. just so terrible. Adrian Barbeau, we gotta always yeah. mention Hal Adrian Holbrook Barbeau. and Adrian Barbeau married together. Adrian Barbeau is just like perpetually drunk, drunk and an lashing out at him. Asshole. And Hal Holbrook so mild mannered and quiet. Yeah. Like that, like it's, it, the movies. I think carried mostly by the. Something tied to was fun, but the crate is just like yes, the Agreed. thing. All right, don't have, you have seen to watch. It? Please see it. Tom. it it's have not... you seen Creepshow Two? No. That's a little more of an adaptation. <laughs> no, I haven't seen Creepshow. Creepshow Two has some great nudity. If you if you if you're a fan of that, I don't remember yeah. the raft part, man. Ladies, no little little kid Mario once again, once again Stephen King. <laughs> Fucking little kid Mario. All right, so my number four. Um... It's great. Nu- well, sorry, great nudity for a few seconds, then it becomes terrible nudity. <laughs> oh well. We'll yeah. we'll revisit that. That's what happens in all nudity. We'll be revisiting that point. All nudity is good for a couple of seconds until it becomes terrible. My number four is uh, the 1995 Taylor Hackford movie Dolores Claiborne. Yeah, this 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 the, this came close for me. Oh my God! She killed her. This is not a trial. This is a preliminary inquest in all cases of death. As suspicious in nature. Someone to see you here. I told you I don't want no lawyer. Dolores, it's your daughter. When was your last visit? Fifteen years ago. I didn't kill her. I'm not murder that witch anymore, and I'm wearing a diamond tiara. We need a piece of your hair, Miss Claven. Take what you want. I ain't doing any beauty pageants this week. This is a movie that I've seen, and I like it. It's a good movie. It's good to know. It's it's good post-misery uh, Kathy Bates. It's got an amazing cast, including Jennifer Jason Lee and Christopher Plummer and David Strathairn and Eric Bogosian and John C. Riley. Bogosian and John, John C. C. Riley. Yeah! Remember John C. Riley? Remember Eric Bogosian? But here's the kicker for this movie for me. Is that it also stars as young Jennifer Jason Lee, as young Selena, a girl named Ellen Muth, who I went to school with. Who really? grew up in Milford and went to all the same schools that I went to. And then she got hit by a satellite. Did she actually get hit by a satellite? I don't think she did. You never saw Dead Like Me? I did see Dead Like Me, but I didn't like see the episode where she got hit by a satellite. That's how she... Dies. Oh, okay. What? Now, see, I'll just. I'm not like a stalker. 
I just know she's on Dead Like Me. Dead Like Me was great. I'm just saying, should, the very first episode, she gets hit by a satellite. She still lives in Milford. I've seen her around. I actually think she accidentally came to. Oh no, that was a different person. Um, that was on, is on television. That lives in Milford. That came to a, join her in her show. Um, <laughs> but it's she was a famous. Ladies, I knew a famous person. Right. I and it was really weird and like I. Ladies only works with me. Yeah. Okay. I don't Sorry. need any ladies. <laughs> yeah. I got all the ladies. I just figured join her in her. No, that's no <laughs> ladies are coming to that. No ladies ever came to that. <laughs> and Alex. felt good about Alex. themselves. Alex did, yeah. yeah. I like Alex. Bob D'April. This is so becoming just a bar episode. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Bob D'April just sitting at the, the, that table in two booths. What we just played to him. And your wife and, and, your wife and kids. Oh, yeah, my parents. And there was someone there who was like, <laughs> this amazing Latin... Like you might want band. you might want to timestamp this. <laughs> no, no, we're leaving this in. But it was it's like it's a movie that's kind of imprinted in my head, and not just not just the fact that I I knew another Alan, another good eclipse movie by the way another good eclipse movie. So the thing, so it has really good cinematography in it. It's actually a really well put together like um, contained piece of work. You know, what I mean, they're in that house. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee is incredible in it. Ellen is also very good in it. Um, Kathy Bates is is like on a roll at that point that she will be mm-hmm. on until she accidentally is in about Schmidt. I was about to say about really Schmidt really mm-hmm. kind of ruins it. But I can yeah, still... Jennifer Jason Lee's fucking like like Carrie yeah. like yeah. Not, unless it carries it because that seems to suggest nobody else is great in it. But Jennifer no, Jason Lee's like really she's on really fire. It's you can actually she's so it, magnetic. If you track like the career of Jennifer Jason Lee, you can almost kind of say this is like a pivotal fulcrum point a fulcrum point where she's never going to be better than she is in Dolores Claiborne because it's kind of the perfect material for that stuff you know what I mean it's really deep but it's also really pulpy you know what I mean it's just a murder mystery like did she kill these people or didn't she kill these people but there's all this psychological ramification stuff that's kind of layered on top of it so yeah Dolores Claiborne is my number four um it's just a movie that kind of hangs out in my life for a couple of different but really reasons. really quickly though the thing that bugs me about Dolores Claiborne is not a problem with Dolores Claiborne. I think it's a great fucking movie. Um, is that the book and its margins? I always forget like... Taylor Hackford directed it. Man. Taylor Hackford is, is almost so a weird. good director. Yeah. Proof they, of Life is almost a really good movie. Um, the but, worst part about Dolores Claiborne is that in the book, the margins have like stars and moons and stuff on it. Yeah. Is when they were printing shit in the margins era. Oh, all right. No, it's the fact that David Strathairn for me is such a fucking great villain, and yeah. we don't get David Strathairn playing villains. I know, like ever. He plays like semi like. He was Edward R. Murrow. Yeah, yeah. villain, right? <laughs> democracy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but he plays like those like semi confrontational <laughs> kind of like antagonists that aren't really like villains like the Godzilla movies but he never plays like in the shit sort of villain and he's so good I was I just know. like an awful piece of shit in this I just have one thing to say about this is that this is the one movie I wanted to revisit uh-huh. for this you know ranking because I haven't seen it since I saw it in the movie theater so I've seen it just the one time I thought it was fantastic yeah but it's just gone. Yeah, so it's so long ago yeah. that I can't but it's count just, it among my top five. I just don't think it's in 
It's not in the discussion ever. But it's, if I, it's it's considered like it's commonly it's like very, held in the it's top ten. It's such a good movie. Yeah, but it's it's one of those things where there's movies that there's Stephen King movies that were more popular that are always going to eclipse think, it as. I think nobody like cares about Dolores Claiborne in the novel. I mean, it's just it's not. There's nothing like yeah. that separates it from kind of like a typical sort of like family drama no, or like repressed sort of it's, things. It's it's, it's so contained. Well, and it's from that period. It's from that really problematic like long period that King was in post it. But it was one of the better books. It was, but it, because it was one of those books, it was, you know, I think it was lumped in with them before misery. No, it was, it was before, after misery. After misery. Yeah, it was mm-hmm. after. Um, so it was just like one of those books where it just kind of like washed. Yeah. It's just that whole era of King is just kind of washed out um, for a long time. I, you know, it's just, I don't know what it is. Um, whose turn is it? You? Do it. Speaking of, it is before, it is after Misery, because Misery came out in 1990, because that's my number four. You almost died. You have a compound fracture of the tibia in both legs, and the fibula in the right leg is fractured, too. And as soon as the roads open, I'll take you to a hospital. In the meantime, you've got a lot of recovering to do. There is nothing to worry about. You're going to be just fine. I'm your number one fan. My name is Annie Wilkes. I think one of my clients, Paul Sheldon, might be in some kind of trouble. You mean Paul Sheldon, the writer? Well, everybody sure likes those misery books. We had it at the store, Paul. They said he checked out last Tuesday. Isn't that a little strange? I guess it was kind of a miracle you finding me. In a way, I was following you. You were following me? Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours, but the misery novels. You must be a good man. You could never have created such a wondrous, loving creature as Misery Chastain. What, you number uh, four is Misery? Yes. What was your number five again? I we talked about Gerald's Misery. We, we talked about Misery with my books. Oh, right. Yeah, now we're talking about the movies. Um, everything just just works. As, like I saw Misery right when it first came out on video. So I was like five. Maybe I saw a little later. Maybe I saw like six. No, I saw a little later. I think I was like six or seven. So I probably saw Why? like a couple years later. <laughs> My mom wanted to watch it. My mom wanted to watch it. He's on record as having very traumatic, open minded. No, but this didn't, this didn't tra- traumatize me. It was you just was the baby in the theater. The hammer to the ankle. No, I saw this on video. So maybe your mom like, I'm going to do this to you if you don't stop. <laughs> if you don't bring her back. I was writing all my short stories as a little kid. I killed off someone. Um, and I remember not being terrified, but being enthralled. And Misery is a movie that came close to ending up on a pivotal film list, but something that kind of like made an impact and then kind of faded away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's such... It, like Kathy Bates has Annie so utterly captivating. She wins the Oscar for this, yes. if I remember. Yeah, she wins the Oscar. Easily wins the Oscar for this. In my opinion, I don't think there was any question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and everything's so contained. Uh, it's it's weird because it it's well, you a know, Rob Reiner film, and James yeah. Conn wasn't even on their radar to play him. He was just like, he oh was no, just the guy. He was just the guy that would do it. Oh really? Yeah, like hmm. Rob Reiner was not thinking of James Conn. He was just who, the guy that they ended up. Who was he thinking of? I don't remember who it was. It, I'm I'm. Thinking of a WTF. Timothy Hun? I feel like there was a lot of people on this list way before James Conn was on the list. But I Oh, sorry. William Hurt? 
Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dennis Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford. Basically everyone. Yeah. And then Warren Redford. But he wanted to... Warren ba- Sorry, uh, Warren Beatty. But he wanted it to be uh, a little more juicy, I guess. Juicy? He wanted to have sex. He wanted, punch, he wanted to punch up the story. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. In that it's just, it's so contained. You know, it's so, like watching this as a kid, it's so small and so intimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also a Rob Reiner movie. Yeah, so it's very, but it's also a Rob Reiner it's movie. Like it's a Rob soft, Reiner movie with but... cinematography by Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah. <laughs> written by like William well, Goldman. by that? Because to me, it's, like it's not on my list. It's very, it's in the top ten, but. It's a perfect adaptation. Part of that, no, I mean, no it of, is. But part it's, of that is because visually, the book is so concise. It's visually so soft. Yeah, like it's not like he's, he's not. There's no right, really right. weird camera angles. He's not playing up like. It could easily have been one of those '90s. T- it could have been one of those easily one of those '90s t- like television adaptations. But the overhead shot of the. The ankle hit. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's not... It's not Rob Reiner doesn't make weird movies. There's nothing weird here. It's yeah, just like sure. a movie. Yeah. Every shot is like the shot you would expect, you know... It's the same thing with like, something like A Few Good Men. You know what I mean? Which everyone likes, but it's just a standard issue movie right. with a bunch of good performances in it. I call it the Ron Howard syndrome. Yeah, yeah they're like the same thing. It's like yeah. they're not making movies that kind of like step out of bounds in terms of like cinematography or imagery or anything right. like that it's just a movie but i think to the to its credit it, that's what it is mm-hmm. yes and you know it just it it just it, it that is that sort of like quiet intensity to it that just like enraptured me and it's yeah. it's such like a it's it's a low burn at times so being such a kid and being just captured by this movie just it's one of those things that kind of like attracted me to acting mm-hmm. and attracted me to like what a performance can carry. Cause like you said, it's a really perfect adaptation. So it's not reinventing the wheel in terms of filmmaking, editing, cinematography. Cause Barry Sonnenfeld doing the cinematography. He's, he's probably sitting. He's, he's just thinking about men in black in the back of his head. Or was that Jay Roach that did the money? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and William Goldman. So like, He's obviously just good at adapting screenplays into like adapting books into screenplays. So, like, it's funny that James Caan, you know, ends up being the actor for it after all these other people turned it down or weren't there. Is is the fact that those perform like the chemistry between those two works so perfectly? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Um. All right. What's your number three? Well, we often talk. Uh. About adaptations, worried about taking risks, mm-hmm. um, and that sometimes you know it's it's fair to say that you know you don't need to perfectly adapt to, adapt Stephen King because sometimes he doesn't nail the ending and sometimes he doesn't get to the mark. Mm-hmm. And my number three uh, comes from an adaptation of a short story, a novella from Skeleton Crew. It is the 2007 Frank Darabont, The Mist. Something in the mist! 
Shut the doors! Shut the doors! The only way we're gonna help ourselves is to seek rescue. Tie this around your waist. Or four. It'll let us know you got at least 300 feet. There's nothing out there. Nothing in the midst. What if you're wrong? Then I guess the joke would be on me. What are you doing? What's this screaming for? I don't know. What's the screaming for? Oh. Have you seen this yet? <laughs> yeah. Yes. He talks about it all the time. It 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 was my mission number my number two, but then rewatching my number two, I had to reconfigure it. Um, I'm just going to give a spoiler. It's my number two. Oh, awesome. Okay. okay. So, yeah. I can... Yeah. yeah we'll you can, you can talk no, about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. JP's just like, you cannot talk. Please shut up. Shut up. Um, I, have, I have lots to say, clearly. The, the mist is for, like, I already loved the story as a kid. So, like, going into this movie, I was so fucking pumped. You know, and, like, the ending was always kind of like a slight, not disappointment for me, but it carried that mystery of what's to come. And, you know, Darabont had already done a really pretty good adaptation as we will talk about <laughs> later twice in different podcast episodes maybe three times various this times will be the well, this will be three probably yeah yeah well, yeah we'll get there exactly um and had done what i still find to be an okay adaptation with green mile um yeah i was pumped for him to do something that was like grounded in the horror mm-hmm. um you know and as a kid, you know, excited about monsters in the mist. And this is like this, the monster in the mist sort of thing. The monster in the dark. And, you know, he, he does that well. He does all, all the, like, like, the CGI at times is a little hokey and whatnot. Um, but it captures everything. Like, like the monster of a noble size from the book. Sure, you see the top of it, but it captures that depth. You know, and the cast is... is blends to originally this film was actually shot in black and white uh because yeah it was originally intended to be released in black and white because he wanted to capture like a b-grade horror movie essence to it Uh because he like frank darabont like kind of like wanted to capture that sort of mindset because a lot of the performances kind of carry that kind of slight bit of hokiness to them but everything is so earnest and in the way it's done but then they assumed marcia gay harden was like the villain on the inside (laughs) She was just the creature the whole time, yeah, no, in black and white. But that's but that's the thing. It's like it's like even like someone like Marsha Gay Harden who just so goes fucking over the oh, top with man, it, but yeah. so still good with. It. I think she wins yep. like the Saturn Award for. She's for, great. She's great. She's fucking insane. And everyone else and like so we, like. If I got to interject, like oh yeah, irritating. Like, yeah. you're so like oh. You're just like everybody else in the grocery store. Like, shut the fuck up. Or the people yeah. don't, that don't What's, side with yeah, her yeah. anyways. Well, that's, that's a great catharsis when, like, Ollie tells her to, like, shut the fuck up, you know? Yeah. Um, and even, like, you know, you just get... You can kind of see the characters, the way they were written, just being emulated as they were. Because, like, the book itself is, like, a little... The story itself is kind of hokey. You know, it's, it's a monster sort of story. Yeah, you got um, lobster claws appearing yeah. out of the mess. Exactly. <laughs> Um, Speaking loves. You got William Sadler doing that William Sadler thing, like playing the dumb mechanic. And then you just get to that ending. Yep. 
that fucking, ah! that fucking ah! ending. You know, and that's when you, you change right. a king ending. Do you know the ending? Yeah. You've yeah. seen it, right? Because you've seen that kind of scene. Yeah. Oh, I thought you haven't seen it. Yeah. No, I love it. I love oh, the ending. Oh, good. He just... <laughs> because I hate him. I think he fucking stinks as an actor. What? Thomas Jane? Thomas Jane is terrible. Oh, that, yeah. That ending, I love Thomas Jane. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the original. I think I just original, wandered around the movie theater for a little while after. The original, you know, just like what? I mean, Holy I'm sure, shit! Did they really do yeah, that? We'll get your like impact from it, but like just like the original, you know, book ending just with them and the Howard Johnson, just mm. kind of like wondering. They they Let's think just keep they driving think they away. Hear, but I think they hear like Boston or something. I can't remember what it's Providence. More than a feeling. They hear Providence, I think, right. in, in the radio, and you're kind of like, oh, okay, fine. Like you don't know where the change is, and like. This changes it to where they run off gas, David kills his son and everyone else in the car, tries to kill himself, can't, goes outside the car, Out waits bullets. for it. 90 seconds later. Not 90 seconds. No, from like when he shoots them to oh, when yeah. like it all... But from what, the second he goes outside, not five seconds later, here's the sound in the darkness and it's the military. And the mist is clearing. Clearing as they're burning. And then, and then, yeah. and then a nice little notch on the top, the mother who went off to find her kids, which is <laughs> so on the nose, but so like much of just more of a gut punch. And, you know, Thomas Jane just drops and... <laughs> and you just get that like fucking... This, this comes out three years after Passion of the Christ. And they just borrow what sounds like the entire like John Debney score from Passion of the Christ with that kind of orchestra chanting sort of music as it plays. And you're just like, holy fucking shit. And, like, King commonly says, like, you know, positive things about his films. But even he, like, like when he admits that the ending's better... He than was blown away story, by yeah. it. Yeah. Like, and he says that... He says that a lot about stuff, like, his adaptations. Mm. But that, this is true. Like, yeah, this yeah. ending destroys the ending to the original Mist. It's just, like... Sure, it's crazy and so over the top, but it's fucking like it's 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 manipulative, obviously from an emotional standpoint. It's like the primo definition of an emotionally manipulative ending, but it fucking works. Yeah, it yeah, no, is a awesome. gut punch. Um, I don't know. We'll get back to it. Obviously, I'll just do my number three. My number three is The Shining. Mom. Yeah? Do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. Yeah, I guess so. For some people, uh, solitude and isolation can of itself become a problem. My number three, too, is The Shining. Put it up. Uh, I I honestly didn't think anybody else would have it on theirs. I thought you hated it. I I know Mario is not a fan. I don't love it, but it's a big, it's like a pivotal film. 
Well, I really like Mick Garrett. I like Mick Garrett's like, directing. Rebecca De Mornay really does a great job. We're talking about the Stanley Kubrick. Oh, I didn't see that. Jack Nichols and Shelley Duvall. <laughs> no, not the, not the mini. Scat, scat oh, the films. movie based on the documentary. Yeah, the movie based on the documentary, you know. And then, it's funny, because the movie, actually, my appreciation of the movie has nothing to do with the documentary. Part of my appreciation of the movie has to do with the fact that, like, it was, it's, I was always confused by it. Like, my whole life, I've never sat down and been like, this is really scary, or this is really anything, but it's um, just kind of always been a part of my visual dialogue with myself in terms of like other movies and stuff um it just i don't know it's just it's just always there and it's and it's and now i think the things that work best about it are like the in-between things it's not the blood coming out of the elevator and it's not you know jack in the in the maze it's um you know all those kubrickian you know i'm sorry if that's not a word but like just shots like when they're watching TV and the snow is falling and stuff mm-hmm. like that those really haunting moments where nothing's happening but you can just feel that this is the dread this is going bad how old were you when you saw it first I don't know not not that young yeah I mean again you know we could do this in tandem um, this was one of the first things I was drawn to Maybe Alien and Jaws predate it, but I remember getting the little HBO guide and being. And you're, you're a fan of Alien. Should came back. Should come back for next week. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little spoiler there. Whatever. I don't understand. The theme of this podcast though, is that Tom doesn't understand Alien. I don't understand that at all. Well, that's so. You know, you turned me on to the Eli Roth podcast, and both the Stephen King and in the Quentin Tarantino episodes. They talk about like how great Alien is. I'm like, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? I don't understand. Continue. Well, anyways, I mean, getting that little HBO booklet, they had a little picture of Jack Nichols with the axe, and I'm like, what is this? I need to see it. You know. So. Mm-hmm. Um, oh man, I remember those HBO booklets too. Like they yeah, were still doing those the in little the little booklets. They you get so excited about like. Because you'd see like What's the coming? debut date, and you're yeah. like, "Oh shit!" Yep. And I would. Two thousand kids don't remember. Yeah. Or nineteen eighty two kids. <laughs> I would catch bits and pieces, but when I finally saw it, it was really the first movie I saw with any kind of film perspective. When you mm-hmm. talk about pivotal films, this is the pivotal film for me because it was the first movie I saw where I was like, "Somebody's making this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just. TV or anything. Yep. So that's why it's so important to me. And, and the twin girls, which aren't really even in the book, aside from being told about the story yeah, about them. Yeah, they're being twin girls, yeah. Um, it, they, they still scare the living fuck out of me. Um, I'm blanking a little bit here, but... um. There's other there are other aspects of it. Uh, room two three seven, mm-hmm. two seventeen in the book. Um, that was one of the most imprinting things in my life. Seeing that scene, the heartbeat through the scene, mm-hmm. just horrifying. Well, it's one of the weird things about like the documentary, is that 
it kind of clarified some of my thinking about having about watching the movie. So like them moving through the space, right? I've always found really not like disturbing per se, but just I don't know haunting. Like it was. It's when you were the first time you watched it, you were just like, "This is a haunted place." Like before you even understand that it's haunted, before you see the twin girls, before anything ever happens, you're like, "Sure, this place is fucked up." And well, I don't know what it is. So it just you is. know what it is. It's you've everybody's been there where they've been in a foreign place and they're exploring it on their own, and this kid's on a big wheel going through the hallways, taking turns, and. I, I know I had that as a kid sleeping over my like my aunt and uncle's house. Um, this foreign place and you're experiencing it by yourself. And so the, when those twin girls show up, when he turns that corner, it's like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think for me, it's the like the opening soundtrack, the opening score. The... No, that's what I was going to say. It sets the table. Air for, everything. For me... Again, being a young age, but the score, just even the credits, the, the ice blue credits coming down the screen. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, they showed it in the movie theater. I went, and all that was affecting, but, you know, it really kind of, you know, when it came out, it was panned. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, gets, it gets the Razzie nominations for director yeah. and actress. <laughs> and you know why? It's all the close-ups ridiculous mm-hmm. the Nicholson close-ups the Shelley Duvall close-ups on a big screen it's so overwhelming it, I was laughing out loud at how ridiculous it looks but again uh, the scene when she discovers his typing all mm-hmm. of his typing oh my god it's fantastic awesome yeah I, I can't say enough I can't either alright so can I can I, can I just yeah, yeah, jump yeah, yeah. in like because this is the, this, this is, is the end for The Shining yeah, yeah this is like, it we're you come back for Doctor Sleep episode, right? But we'll do. I mean, we're not going to talk about The Shining. Again, so, so years ago, I watched The Shining and, and hated it. Mm-hmm. And when we reviewed Room Two Three Seven, I wanted to go back to it and rewatch it and see what I hated about it, and see if maybe that's still the opinion I held. And I still do. And the reason for that is there's something innately missing for me, and I was trying to find what it was. Hedge animals. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> The, ho- the fire. So what, what works is there's always a foreboding sense of dread to its setting, to to the the component pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Like even like to me, one of the scariest parts is more this like when he's they're getting introduced to the hotel. Yeah, yeah. By mm-hmm. the manager. I agree. Like it's not scary. It's not meant to be scary, but there's a certain. And room two three seven even talks about like like even earlier about how some like the um the geometry of the space doesn't make any sense. The geometry right. that dissolves, like the weird dissolves yeah. that take forever. Like and you're just kind of like, well, this is when you're watching, you're just like, this is too long, and for for like a couple second chunks, you don't even really know what you're looking at because the scene, the previous scene is overlapping with the current mm-hmm. scene it's so like hard. Mat, yeah. That it's like, you're just like, what is this? Like, where am I? Yeah, exactly. And, and like, that works extremely well to build this sense of of hauntedness and inherent evil that would kind of be like the before the plague sort of nun-written prologue that King had or, you know, um, Foreshining or kind of like setting the sense of this otherworldly evil. 
my problem though is when the no- uh, the film drops itself down next to our characters mm-hmm. that it loses that for me there's something missing with and I actually think Shelley Duvall does a good job but there's something missing with Jack Nicholson well, for me well, that's, King's, that's, that's, that's King's huge problem with it is that that car ride yep. to the interview he's already crazy yeah what's he, up with he, that? Are, yeah, he's, he, he already hates his wife he already hates his life he already hates his kid and, and not only that but like like he's so unlikable of a person right and like you know that I get it that yeah. Jack is supposed to be not like I know from the original story he's not supposed to be unlikable but the fact that he's already crazy like ruins the influence that the hotel has and yep. the hotel like Kubrick knows you're, how to control a shot. Yeah, like, you're not talk wrong. About this. You're not wrong. And, and, and it's, it's the sense that Jack is, it becomes more of like, this guy's already crazy, and sure, there might be some, there's obviously some evil presence at the hotel, but it's just like doing what was already coming. And it, it, it eliminates the kind of otherworldliness and vastness of it. I mean, this is you know, dealing heavily with kind of like the, the symptoms of alcoholism and substance abuse mm-hmm. and the overbearing weight it could have on a type of person, mm-hmm. despite their best attentions, and, and it just loses all of that because that otherworldliness is gone. It just becomes a, a mere symptom of an overarching psychosis. So that's one way to look at it. I think the other way to look at it is that in doing so, in removing all that I don't want to call it subtext. It makes it scarier in a sense. And that you're not working on... It's not as intellectual, but it's much more visceral. Which puts it more in line with what Jack Nicholson was doing but it's in not... 1980 than he was... Like, more so than what the, the book is offering. You know it's what I not, mean? It's not visceral to me, though. It's not visceral to me in the sense that Jack is like evil unto himself and kind of like already has these parts of himself sort of missing and and then kind of elevates that to the nth degree to where I think part of what could be almost the tragedy of of Shining as a story and I I don't know if there's original intention of the book but I I just kind of bring up the, the direct translation from the 1997 version. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that work is like is that is that overwhelming destruction of the man himself, a good man being yeah. destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's inherent. That's inherently important to the overarching sense of of the breadth of evil that exists in the Overlook. That you know it, it could destroy a good man. So, but I think what Kubrick was tackling is the idea that the man is already destroyed. Which is less, which I kind of agree is less interesting from like a movie to book perspective. But I think it's there in the movie where he's fought the demons and he's lost against the demons. And this is not just like a bad idea in the way that the book frames it. Like, you know, Jack being locked up in in this hotel with just his family is is a bad idea in the book. In the movie, it's a fucking terrible idea. And in the movie, it's incumbent on literally everybody else to say, you should not do this, because this is going to go really fucking bad. And I think the book is interesting in the sense that it's not just Jack that goes bad, it's the hotel that goes bad. 
in the movie, it's Jack that goes bad. Right. And Jack is the ve- Jack is the vehicle for the hotel in the book, but he's 100% the vehicle for the hotel in the movie. I mean, I don't... There's not even anything else in the hotel that happens to any of them other than Jack just trying to kill them. Yeah, he's and, extracted and... all the other stuff out. And that's the thing. Like, I don't even think the book, the movie, even needs the hotel to be haunted. It could just be like a fucking... Cabin fever. Cabin story. fever guy. And, and that's what doesn't work for me is the sense that, like, I've, you know, there's, there's a better story that does that than, than, like, needing to rest on the visuals of, of the evil hotel. Well, so that's the thing. So- Especially since, like, it establishes early on that the hotel is evil and, and there's something unsettling in its nature. And if you're going to do that, then you have to, like, fucking really do that. You can't just then be like, no, you know, the hotel is still evil, but this guy is the bigger problem because he's crazy. But I would say that this is what Kubrick is doing is he's eschewing all of the, all that extra stuff and he's just going right to the one visceral point, which is to say that he's not going to do, like, the ghosts coming out of the hotel. It's just the woman in room 237 mm-hmm. primarily. It's just the twins, although they don't do anything. Um, but then nothing's doing anything. Nothing is doing anything to drive the plot. If, like, even you know, just even even Lo- I was going to say even Lloyd is just kind of rushing it along. He's just getting Jack to a point where he's going to get to anyway at yeah. the end. Well, well and, so, so what I'm saying uh, is that he take the Kubrick takes all that extra stuff out, and it's literally just Jack. It really becomes about the Lloyd the bartender scene, and then the Grady scene in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, but that's just like, and like, those scenes are great, but when you take all, like, I don't think that stuff is extra stuff. I don't. I think that stuff is is inherent to telling the story. And if you're not going to use that, then either one, make a movie not about a haunted hotel. You know, it doesn't have to be like an adaptation of Stephen King. Just don't have that shit but in it's, there. It's or, not about a haunted hotel. It's about solitude. Yeah, I understand the, that. The, but so that in the book, the hotel is key in terms of plot in terms of narrative in terms of whatever because there's all this history with the hotel and the in the film solitude is in the film it's literally just like get him out of the world get him into this hotel get him snowed in and like that's the end that would have been fine that would have been a great movie had they not then thrown all the air shit with the haunted stuff, stuff. yeah all right that's my problem number two Wait, is, yeah well, my because your three was shining so what's your number two my number two is the mist we don't really have to talk much more about it um you know, like why is it why is it there for you? It's there for me because of uh, how well it was adapted, and then the ending was just such an improvement. The ending's one of the great endings I've ever seen in mm. a movie, like in terms of that shock value. Mm. Well, how yeah. that how that ending make you feel? I think that's the big Unexpected. part. I was I, I, heard, I saw I you said you, you walked around the movie theater. A little bit, just in. I mean, I might be exaggerating. Whoa, but. Uh, yeah, it was just so horrifying that he would have taken that, 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 that they would even do that in a movie, that he would kill his kid and everybody else in the Jeep and then reveal to him that... You didn't have to do that. Yeah. If, he if just you waited. just held out a few yeah. more minutes. And that's almost the message of it, is just don't yeah. fucking do it. Um, so my number two relates directly to the conversation we had at the very beginning of this episode. Which is The Mangler? Is, no, it's not the Mangler. It is um it, chapter one. 
My grandfather thinks this town is cursed. That all the bad things that happen in this town are because of one thing. An evil thing. Not so much that I think it's it's not like an all-time great movie or anything like that, but I I even from the first time I saw it, I was enthralled to its um, adaptation. It did everything right. It took a very problematic book and extracted all the problematic stuff out of it and just left what was most important, which is a movie about seven kids trying to come to terms with the fact that life was not going to be just playing in the swamp and throwing rocks riding bikes and all this other stuff that it was going to be vastly more complicated um the payoff at the end of the movie was fine I'm okay with it not so much the fight even though that was better than the fight at the end of <laughs> chapter two um but as I already mentioned like, I, you get that great Finn Wolfhard line you get that great Finn, <laughs> Finn Wolfhard line but you also get the great um Bill shooting Georgie in the head. Yeah. Like, shooting it in the head. Um, or, you, or, you know, Bev interrupting her dad by sticking the rod down the throat. That, I think all yeah. that stuff works. All that stuff is good. And that's the thing. But it's, it carries all that stuff. Can you ter- believe It Chapter 2 followed that movie? Oh, it's my God. Te- it's just terrible. And I think, and so it made you like It Chapter 1 less. It made me like it more. In the sense, it was more composed. It knew what it was doing. Um, well, and the beauty is they can... If if you're not a book reader, you, it chapter one can stand as its own movie. And it, yeah, and like you know that it doesn't die because you know he says the weird Bill thing that um, rhyme he's supposed to be saying that like help him with the stutter like he says it it like you hit, hits its punch it hits its fist against the posts or whatever it is something that goes um you know so he's talking when he goes down even though his head splits open whatever. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's just great. It does everything really well. It does the new kids on the block stuff well. It does the best. Yeah, it actually has an interjection of music that makes sense. It does the backstory stuff. Unlike it, really chapter well, two, where it assigns Ben the job of knowing all the stuff about Derry's past. Why would he do that? Because he's a loser and spends a lot of time in the library. Was it Ben or Mike? It's Ben. It's, it's Ben in the first. It's in the, Ben in the, in the movie. So Ben um, kind of finds out, and he's just kind of like obsessed with it. Why? Because he doesn't have any friends. He's a new kid, so he just spends a lot of time in the library, library researching the place that he comes from. All that stuff is seamlessly intertwined in the first in the first movie. And the thing I worked really well too was like, and the thing that, like I said, we, we talked about in the review is a failing of it, chapter two, and that could have been done better. Is like the relationship stuff is actually like the the Bev Bill Ben stuff is actually interesting in it, chapter yep. one. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it's it's it, it seems, seems like really it's hurting earned. Ben. Yeah, it seems like Bev is both conflicted, super flattered, but like yeah, very conflicted over what she's doing. So even like stuff like the blood, which is in the book, coming out of the drain and like splashing all over Bev, in is 
it works not just from an adaptation point of view, but it works also from a kind of growing up point of view. You know what I mean? Where, like, she's becoming a woman. Yeah, exactly. And it makes sense. Yeah, like, like, that's the thing that, like, it makes sense in that part, especially with, like, the hair mm-hmm. and all that. Like, the, the, you could say, like, almost has, like, got, a, like, like, a pubic sense to it mm. in, a, in a degree. And, like, then the, the blood is kind of, like, period blood. Yep. Which is also a problem with it, chapter two is just like that's the one thing I didn't mention during any review is like that toilet scene is the use of the most blood ever in a film. Like the most blood ever used for a scene, taking over from Piranha three D, which actually uses it really well. <laughs> sure. The uh excuse me, but the It's a good movie. Piranha three D has yeah. has it's just it's a it's a massacre at like a little concert <laughs> thing. Eli Roth gets his head exploded, a couple porn stars get cut in half. It's a great oh, scene, cool. but that, like, contrasting those two, like, that scene in it, chapter one, is kind of horrific in the sense of, like, it's just, like, psychologically damaging, and it chapter two, like, why is it happening? Why is, why is it, why is this room, fi- well, why I mean, is this, like, a rehab? She's supposed yeah, to be reliving just... that moment of, like, her greatest shame, I guess, so she can, like, um, reconcile it with like who she actually is, and so she doesn't have to be afraid of it anymore. But but that's the stuff in the bathroom with the girl. Like the stuff it's in the bathroom disconnected. at school is not has nothing to do with the bathroom with, and her. At yeah, home. exactly. Right. Um, and that is that is the thing that like that bugs me now. Like looking at the stuff from chapter one is like I agree. Chapter one does let's carry on does all the things right. <laughs> You know, it, it captures all the, that that emotion, right? And even though, ultimately, when we both left it, we just called it a funhouse horror movie. Because that's what it is. It's just like, I said it, I mean, I think a lot of, some reviews said that. I said it was the Goonies of horror. Mm. In, in the sense of, you know, it's it's coming of age, and it's it's of its, of that, like, that period of life. But, like, it does it all really well and contained. Mm-hmm. Because the things that are supposed to be horrific, like, when you see... You know, Mike's, we found to be Mike's parents kind of struggling out of the fire. That's scary as shit in it, chapter yeah. one. And in it, chapter two, it's just like, this is stupid. Well, like, the, still, like, the, st- I mean, all the stuff in it, chapter one is done for one shorter mm-hmm. and is done effectively. Uh, like, more effectively. So, and like, the I, I think painting every... that scares Stanley, awesome. Yeah. The leper, awesome. The weirdo, the decapitated like, head, like that that chases around Ben. Um, not great, not, not great. But it's early in the movie, so yeah. you kind of you can kind of forgive it. You know what I mean? Um, it's uh, it's one of those things where, like, now having come out of it, chapter two, and really hating it and loathing its existence, I admire it, chapter one, even more for Re- like this stuff. And again. We went into chapter yeah, one. Yeah, we should, we should talk about how we... The, the big a big reason, like, we love it, chapter one. We both walked into it. At, we, we saw this together. Yeah, yeah. And we walked into it going, you know, I hope this is good, but it's not going to have the balls to... To do the opening scene of it. Yeah, it's, it's not, not going to show... It's not going to have the balls to rip George's arm off. And then it ripped George's arm off. And, and returned to each other. It, it, Ripped George's arm off, and then it cut to Georgie crawling with one arm through the street. Has blood is spitting out of his mm-hmm. like. And it was just like stump. they did it, and like there was no fear, and because it was, uh, it was a work of real confidence and real surety that they were making all the right decisions. Where it too didn't want to make any wrong decisions, so it didn't make any. Decisions. That's actually a problem too. It too safe. I just I just thought about it. It too is really safe. Yeah. What's doing. 
Like even yeah, just though you see a you kid, a couple of kids' heads off doesn't but, like, mean you did anything interesting. No, no, that's really graphic. Like in it, chapter two, like when uh, the skateboard kid gets gets a bit. He like explodes so in blood, but you don't see anything. Cut. And yeah. then he disappears. Or like when he bites Vicky, like it just grabs Vicky's head. Yeah. But it doesn't like linger yeah, on like the no, torture of a moves child. Away. Yeah. Like Well, and so that's the other thing. And that it, like it captures too. the horror with it, chapter one. So it captures it from the very first moment. It too seems like it is not killing them just because he needs to not kill them because we need to do this movie again. At least in it, chapter one, every time he didn't kill them, it was because somebody put something through his head. Or like Somebody did something to him to or, kind of, you know, or, get him out of here. Or the, the old salting of the meat sort of thing, that building the fear. Like, mm-hmm. you could buy in it chapter one that he's building fear to, like, make the tasty sort of treats. But again, he's building the fear, but then they're appropriately escaping. They're not just kind of, like, building the fear and then, like, them standing there and him just being like, ah, 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 and then being like, oh, I'm going to run away. And then... He's either disappears or he continues to not get them or whatever. Like, there's no reason for him not to eat Richie or not to eat Eddie or anything during any of those situations. Like, after he threw up on Eddie, why not just eat him? Well, because he's, he's small. He's small. So? Like Angel of the Morning's playing. <laughs> All right. Whose turn is it? Yours? Number, Number two. two. Well, this was on... JP's list, so I didn't want to talk much. My number two is the 1983 David Cronenberg horror, Dead Zone. All right. I kind of figured you thought this was going to be on my list, huh? When you uh, said, I figured it was going to be on one of your lists. Yes. I'm sure you will talk much more eloquently about it. Maybe not. You would <laughs> never know. I'm going to surprise you. I think it's a good film. Next. <laughs> Is the Dead Zone on the Dead Zone's on your list? No, is it's it? not on my okay. it's not on my pivotal list. Uh, some Cronenbergs are. Yeah, Cronenberg is uh, since college, and I didn't see this until college. Cronenberg um, is just a director who who resounds with me. Um, and this movie's told with such bluntness that I appreciate. It's, uh-huh. it's so blunt and so on its face. It's. Um, I don't want to necessarily say soft, like that, that Mark Irwin cinematography, but it's, it's very sort of contained, but it's sparked by these moments of like really stunning violence. Um, you know, when, when Dodd, that, that Dodd killing of himself, just is such a... Oh. But it, it's, it's a moment that, that's striking. And, and this film just contains those moments of quietness and... and not levity. Uh, levity is the wrong word. Quietness and kind of like stillness, punctuated by these moments of extreme violence or extreme um, motion, and it's it's frantic in that style. It's mm-hmm. it's such a. I've never read Dead Zone the book, so I don't hmm. can't really compare. You it. Want I, I'll bring it next week. I tried to in middle school, but I, I couldn't get through it. And so maybe it's another one I have to try. There are a lot of kings I, I've tried and couldn't get through. Yeah. Um, the Dead Zone's actually pretty good. I love it. Yeah, I, I just couldn't get into it. Um, when I read I think it's just probably not a middle school book. It's probably one of those No, books. no, I don't think it yeah. is. No, I mean, it's very adult. Yeah. Yeah, for a middle schooler. For, even for me, it was a tough read as a young kid. It's not just like a normal, like, this is a town and this is a guy and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's like, political. It's, it's political, yeah. so it's not, it's not no, easy. Exactly. And, and like, it is, it deals with, 
Like, like there is a serious uh, an adultness that that Cronenberg deals with this. That that this this is at most kind of like a, a character piece of Johnny, and and Walken kind of carries that yeah. level of of energy that I say you know, that, that film has by himself of, of just trying to find his place and, like, just being so overwhelmed with his power um, and, and casting, you know, Christopher Walken in that role, you know, mm-hmm. coming off of stuff he did with the Deer Hunter and whatnot, um, of just, you know, always being on edge but being yeah. able to contain everything. Mm-hmm. And just that movie relies so much on that. Like, there is the acting beneath the acting sort of thing with that. He has, he is rest on that thin veil of sanity um, throughout that, that works so amazingly. And so even when the movie, you know, slows down when you're still watching Johnny deal with the world around him, you feel as though things could break apart and separate at any second. So everything is carried buoyed by this level of just, Severe tension. Well, I think we talked about it already. That, like Christopher Walken is just not comfortable. No, like in this. But he's. That, I think he is. He is. I think he is comfortable. I think he knows exactly what he's no, no, doing. No, but like his yeah. portrayal of Johnny is just kind of like nothing feels good. Here. Yeah, and, right. and that's and that's exactly innately how you feel a person with his power who was just like the typical guy who kind of woke up with his power would be. You know, would would be trying to separate himself from the world to have the world around him trying to you know thrust that that upon him mm-hmm. um you know and you get to that that like last what third of it with with stilson yeah. uh that great manic martin Lo- <laughs> martin Lawrence. Sheen. i almost said martin lawrence yeah baby-faced martin lawrence have you seen the bad boys for life trailer yet will no. smith is johnny smith um, there you go man. that's perfect you know and you get that Will <laughs> Smith will do it. Was it the missiles are flying, gentlemen? That entire like, yeah. I will cut off your hand. Do it, gentlemen. You're insane. I won't. Do it. Put your hand on the scanning screen, and you'll go down in history with me. As what? The world's greatest mass murderers? You cowardly bastard! You're not the voice of the people. I am the voice of the people. The people speak through me, not you. Came to me while I slept, Sonny. My destiny. In the middle of the night, it came to me. I must get up now, right now, and fulfill my destiny. Now you put your goddamn hand on that scanning screen, or I'll hack it off and put it on for you. Do it! Like, so Martin Sheen just overacting the shit out of this, like, maniacally evil. Martin yeah. Sheen overacting? <laughs> I know. Mario? Craziness. Um, this, this kind of populist character that could never exist in real life. Uh, <laughs> but you get to that and it gets to such like this insane stage but you know everything before that has been kind of building and ebbing to where like this movie bubbles it mm-hmm. bubbles to that level to where when you get to that yeah, it makes sense and that's like I just that's the only one I rewatched this week because I was like I don't know if it's going to be on my list and so I rewatched and I was like fuck yeah it is because mm. it's just it is um, I'm, not, I'm not really familiar with like Ronald Sanders has an editor. Um, I don't know if he worked with Cronenberg heavily. Oh no, yeah, he he does. He he did Eastern Promises and History of Violence, and well, never mind. So Ronald Sanders being kind of like Cronenberg's guy, um, you know, it just oh no, he's always been Cronenberg's guy. Okay, that makes sense. You know, like 
it, this is a film that 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 builds that crescendos perfectly mm-hmm. and and you know it starts out at, at such a level that's that's low um and builds to this big world changing sort of thing um while still carried upon the back of that one character and that one character who himself is not not an unreliable narrator narrator but but just just breaking apart so th- this 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 escalation is already on kind of like a rickety roller coaster that's going to fall apart at any mm-hmm. point and it carries it so well that's just so tone perfect mm. it's almost my number one it almost unseated our, our group number one it's a great story great ad- adaptation and Cronenberg's uh, um, a good guy to do something like that if any he... if anything's lost from the book it's that what I took away from the book was how he was beginning of the book before the accident he's embarking on this life with this love mm-hmm. and how that's lost in the end almost short change a little bit in the in the movie and I, I, no the I, I think I, I think that's intentional i think he's just like it's here but like i think the book is just more dealing with kind of those, yeah i mean the film's just dealing more with those kind of like magnetic kind of like right. pressing issues mm-hmm. right i mean it could have even like got rid of that completely and been fine sure yeah they could have spent another like Ten minutes just looking at Christopher Walken's face, and be like, "I like this." Yeah. So we'll um. All right. So we're here. Our number ones. They are all the same. We think. Yes. Right. Um. And that same. The is... Langoliers. <laughs> Bronson Pinchu is just an amazing force. I David Morris. You know, one of the first times I ever introduced to David Morris. <clears throat> you know, just as this, this pilot. You know, and then there's a hitman who's on a last job. He used to be a member of the British Secret Service. Tom Holland, you know, you get Tom Holland doing his great writing, directing, adapting a really hard sort of story. You know, he did Child's Play, but now he's doing something deep and hard. Our collective number one is 1408. Oh, right, right. John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson. Tom, Um, it's an evil fucking room. (laughs) The, the story of 1408 is actually really good, but it doesn't matter. Um, the Shawshank Redemption. So, I mean, so this is what the ringer. This is the ringer guy's problem with it, and this is why he put it as an honorable mention. It was that's contrarianism. It's Adam Naiman, who we talked about last week with the Coen. He wrote the Coen Brothers book. He said, "I think so too. I think it's totally contrarianism." It says, "Our recent rewatch revealed something 
irredeemably sentimental about Frank Darabont's film, much of it rooted in Morgan Freeman's saintly acting I and read voiceover, this. Yeah, I read it. which doesn't give us much room to think or feel on our own about the character or Tim Robbins' jailbreaking banker. The explanatory dialogue and pushy musical score are the cinematic equivalent of having your food chewed for you, which is fine if you're a baby bird, like the one being secret. This is all one sentence. Like the one being secreted with bad writing. Secreted in the pocket of James Whitmore's doomed lifer Brooks. <laughs> um, I respect the film's fan base, which was mostly accrued after its initial box office flop, which is criticizing the fan base. Um, let's just say enough other people love it enough that I don't feel I have to. I mean, I've, al- I've already... Contrary to I've already I've already talked about Shawshank. Yep, and I'm oh, going to talk about it later. Okay, you're going to talk about it later. Was it on your list? Yeah, earlier, it was my, it was my 70. Later. Let's just talk about it as an adaptation. All right. Yeah. Go, Jimmy. I'm just going to say, again, for me, I read that story over and over and over. Then I worked in the movie theater and had no idea it was being adapted, let yeah. alone Tim Robbins was my favorite actor. Mm-hmm. I was like, Tim Robbins is in the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> I go to see it, and I'm like, they fucking nailed the entire thing. They nailed it. Perfectly. Yep. That's all I can say about it. And I'm not sure what. And it's almost, for me, having loved that short, that novella so much, the fact that it's like number one on Rotten Tomatoes or whatever is almost like it's mine. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. I I mean, it's it's weird because what that review criticizes. The number one number one IMDb movie too. Don't forget that. Yes. All that. All the stuff that everyone kind of loves about it and like it's like but it's, it's mine ha- it's like actually I... what happens in the book so it's not like he's being overly sentimental it's i feel like it's right i'm not calling adam Naiman a racist that's fucking stupid but i feel like really quickly we are not calling adam Naiman a racist not calling adam Naiman racist it but... just seems really weird no we cannot open that pandora's box <laughs> it seems really weird for him to criticize something that happens in the book to happen in the movie right because Red does feel that. He feels all those things in the book. Mm-hmm. But translated into the movie, it's coming out of Morgan Freeman's mouth. The book is told through this third-person narrator, or first-person, it's like a Billy Budd type situation. Yeah, where he's, yeah, yeah. he's the first-person narrator of a story that's not his own story. You right. know what I mean? Um, and that's how he feels. He's opinionated. He has his own emotions attached to what happens um, to... Um, Andy's character. So that criticism is total bullshit. It's just contrarian. Like you said, it's just contrarian. Um, you know, everyone likes this, for so I decided I'm not going to like it. And the, uh, you know, just for the record, the other movie that gets an honorable mention is Misery. So the Oscar-winning Stephen King book and then the movie that got nominated for like 10 Oscars, but didn't seven, win yeah. any, seven Oscars, didn't win any, but is now considered like a modern classic are the two problematic honorable mention ones. Right. Everything else is good. Anything that starts with, like, I, I promise I'm not trolling is right. being... You're talking about the Ringer top ten list yeah, yeah, yeah. recently put so, out? So, everything you just said is 100% true to the point where anything that was vaguely problematic in the short story got corrected in the movie. Not saying from anything political or moral or anything like that. From a structure standpoint. You know what I mean? Like, Frank Darabont's script, because he wrote it, right? He adapted it himself? Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, is 
it reframes all the things that happen for its maximum emotional punch. And why would you object to that? What else do you want out of that movie? Right. You want the maximum emotional punch, I would assume. I want right? Oscar-winning cinematography. I want Oscar-winning cinematography. I want a great score. And it is a great score. You know what I mean? Like, maybe it's telling me how By to By the feel, way, once again, you know uh, you even know though I'm pretty sure I mentioned this during my, my pivotal film episode that the Roger Deakins not winning was nonsense. You know what else tells me how to feel in that movie? Losing to Legends of the Falls. Literally everything else in that movie tells me how to feel about the movie. It's not just the score, it's the acting, it's the it's the script, it's the cinematography, it's everything. Um, it is the perfect adaptation of anything. Yes. It, it did everything right. I'm not sure... And it's like, and it used so much of the book. I mean, that's the amazing thing. It used almost all of the, right. the book well, there. And this, and this it is, just reframed it. And, and this is like tone perfect. It's tone perfect editing too. And I don't think this is something I mentioned when I talked about my pivotal list. Um, it's been so long. Uh, like, like it's so tonally, like not tonally. It's it's so soundly progresses its narrative you know like there's no waste we talk often about wasted space there's yeah, so yeah. little wasted space the breaths and the pauses and whatnot and everything that exists the moments that let you breathe are perfect you know like the warden's suicide like, like mm-hmm. everything everything paced about that's about great you know you get richard francis uh bruce like kind of in that like four-year span of just amazing editing mm-hmm. um you know shosh he gets nominated for shawshank very next year he gets nominated for Seven, a movie we might talk about at some point. Maybe. Uh, he does The Rock the year after that. Which is The Rock. Not bad. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's still it's for what one it of is. the great movies of all time, but, but it's, it's still edited. the fucking Rock. It's edited like perfectly. And then he finishes up with another Oscar nomination for Air Force One. Like, They got nominated for Oscars? For editing, yeah. Huh. I mean, that makes sense, though. Cause, like, get off my plane. Get off. No, it got, get off my plane. You gotta do it right. I think it's um, pretty good. This is it. This is the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> our, our listeners have been waiting for the the, ir- the uncome back from a bullfight. This is it. <laughs> Who does the best? Get off my plane. But yeah, that, that's the thing. Every every and this is why like it's not. I don't want to say you're like you're, you know, disprove. It's 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 absolutely unprovable that it's not the best adaptation. But it's so. When you have so many disparate voices saying that it's such a great film, like it's a good movie, it's a great film. You know, you, you can't. It doesn't. It didn't make as much of an impact on me as you know seventy-one other films did. But it is the perfect storm of movies. Did next you, to the perfect storm. Did you each read the story before seeing the movie? No, no. I saw the movie way before I read the story. And I actually think that was in the. I think it works the same way. Where you can read the story for what it is, and it adds to your appreciation of oh, sure. the movie. Sure. In the sense that, like, you're like, this story is great, mm-hmm. but these couple of there's, there's these like couple that, of reframing bit of devices yeah. make it like transcendent. It's like a tr- it's a trans it's a great story and it's a transcendent movie. And I think there's a bit of with Rita Hayward. There's a bit of um, distance. At times, the story mm-hmm. that well, that, because he really like, yeah. digs into like the logistics of like 
cement escape. and how the prison wall it, was made and exactly. like all this other stuff. And like excising that and making it just an absolutely human piece and everything relates to the humans. You know, every single thing relates to its affect on somebody. Yeah. yeah. Is yeah, it, is essential to like like that's ultimately what it is. It's just a true and that's 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 something that's gonna make it into like a universally loved movie that it is, is that it's just a human movie. It's a movie that deals indelibly with human beings. Well it's so well drawn. I mean the guy's wronged the 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 warden has it out for him. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it, you're just rooting for him. It's good just old Bob so... Gunton performance. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you could just say a Bob Gunton performance. We're all pro Bob Gunton here. Yeah. I saw Dead Silence. He's good in that too. What's that? It's a, it's a good old 2007 James Wan slasher film. Oh, yeah. Like a killer puppet. That. There you go. But um, yeah, so you, you were saying that. Well, just, it's. It's built for people to root for the guy, root for Jim Robbins' character, mm-hmm. Andy. Dufresne, right? Yeah. And uh, um, again, like, having loved it so much and then all these people loving this movie so much, it makes me go, is it, is it the story or is it just I'm like everybody else? You know what I mean? I think it's just a great movie. I think yeah, it's a it great just, story. It it's just a great things. story. Yeah. Like there's 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 those movies you Which is all we've been talking about this whole time. Is that like when Stephen King's at his best is when he's not doing anything other than telling a good story. Right. And that's what this is. This is just a, a solid story. Like in the hands of somebody that's could have been mishandled. It would have been hard, I think, to mishandle this one. I think it probably would have been pretty easy in like someone. Like a Lawrence Kasdan hands? No, but maybe Lawrence Kasdan, but like also maybe, maybe like the cast. A Steven Spielberg hands where they're going to be like really heavy handed with it. So it's weird about this movie is that like Adam Naiman's saying that it's heavy handed in the sense that it's, you know, sentimental and that Red's telling you what to feel and the score's telling you what to feel. But in reality, it's not heavy handed. It's just people feeling things and right. then having actual. So, like, in the way it's like a. It's, a perfect adaptation of a novel because a lot of show don't tell because he is telling you how he feels but the Frank Darabont is also showing you exactly what that looks like you know what I mean so it's like when he's talking about being alone or he's talking about being afraid or he's talking about being happy or sad or like when they're in the gro- when you know they're in the grocery store um and they're you know they're working in the you know even um he decides to escape and they're not escape. He decides to leave. All that stuff is present. All the feelings are obviously there in the in Red's narration, but they're also there in the imagery you're seeing. You know what I mean? They're in Morgan Freeman's performance. It's in the way that the camera's moving. It's in the lighting. It's in um it's in all of that stuff. So it's even, I'm it's not hundred percent sure where the criticism would be coming from. And it's <laughs> even in the smaller things like this is something that I, I overlooked and, and wanted to mention really quickly. Um, Clancy Brown's Hadley. Clancy Brown. Woo! Under Underrated. I think he's starting to get his <coughs> recognition. But I told that's you, I such said a, during your thing, my friends years always later. said this is a Clancy Brown movie. <laughs> but it's such that's a... That's what it's all it is. It's such a... The Brian Hadley character is so indelibly evil, but so real at the same time that everything he's doing feels authentic and that's uh-huh. the thing about this movie is, is, is even at even when these movies 
this movie is just telling archetypes, which it is. It's like telling a lot of archetypes mm-hmm. of good guys and bad guys. Like when you peel apart everything, you get you know you get a character, and I think Hadley is the perfect example. This Nancy Brown's really good at playing like really humanizing villains, especially. Um, like it feels like a real part. Like you feel like that could exist. And that's yeah. the thing, like, you can, I think people love this movie because there's so many things that you can take apart from this movie and look at something and be like, I know exactly what that is because I can pinpoint that in the real world. Mm. That kind of like, that bully who is, you know, he he is who's... small because you make him feel small sort of thing. Well, that's the thing that, To like, quote a worse movie. And that's, yeah. It's the thing that happens in, like, um, it, chapter one with... Bowers and why Bowers doesn't really work in the movie is because they try. I mean, it works okay in the movie, but it doesn't work as well as it does in um, the books. Is that they tr- really try to say that he's he's not a sociopath? You know what I mean? He didn't drop out of the sky like it did um, it as made, like a murderer. He, he, he was formed. He was yeah. formed this way. You know what I mean? He was made this way. Hadley's been there for so long and with so many. He's been. His job has not been to protect prisoners. His job has been to protect, like, the scams. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't want to... There's no reason to overanalyze, like, the, you know, nature of Byron Hadley. But um, that's just another reason the movie works so well. I mean, all that the fact that, like, even the head screw is fully formed and realized in its, you know, filmic persona. Um, in the same way that he, more so than he is in the book, where I think he's just a, a brute, mean, kind of like a brute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, we'll, we'll talk about this movie a little, a little more down the road. Down the road. Down the road. Yeah. We'll we'll invite JP back for every subsequent Stephen King conversation <laughs> that might happen. Look, it was coming off. Besides Misery and Dolores Claiborne, mm-hmm. a bunch of bad Stephen King adaptations. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry, but Needful Things had just come out. Well, it's, I mean, it's a great run for Stephen King adaptations. You get Shawshank Redemption, and then Mangler and Dolores Claiborne in the same year. Yeah. That's that's how you do it if you're Stephen King. Yeah. That's how you do it. Three masterpieces. I mean, that's why the car hit him. It had to balance things out. Exactly. And on that note, if you want to send us a little angry tweet... Stephen <laughs> King. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> please... T- Please angrily tweet us, Stephen King. You can tweet us at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Or you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and uh, message us there or see how you can subscribe to us or see a list of the movies that we talked about. Or I'll try to post a list of like our top five movies and top five books um, in the lists, essays, and whatever. J- JP, any, any, anything you want to hawk? Got any projects coming up? Yeah. Uh, nope. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, but until um, you had your chance and you blew it, JP, this would have been your your gateway to stardom. I do have a book of poetry I've been working on. <laughs> well, when you come back next episode, we'll see how that's going. Do you have an Etsy site that you're selling your handcrafted goods on? Um, yeah, go. Uh, you know, watch a movie. Drink Not a it. Beer. Chapter two. Don't yeah, definitely don't see it. Chapter two. Um, Watch another movie, drink a beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's goddamn right. <laughs>